0: Teddy, awesome to have you on. Thanks so much for joining us here on The Bell Curve. And as I'm sure you know, for the benefit of our listeners here, we're all about equipping young professionals uh, and aspiring entrepreneurs with the knowledge and tools to really launch their own ideas, which you have done firsthand. So really excited for this conversation. And uh, for for our listeners, we're lucky to have Teddy Fitzgibbons with us, who's the co-founder and CEO of Street Fair. Uh, and You have a really unique background that I'm excited to dig into here, from working for a VC venture yeah. capital powerhouse to launching and scaling a startup and then even launching your own. Um, so really excited to to dig into that. And Jake tells me, you're both Charlotte-based, so, uh, and then in yep. the vicinity, uh, I, I always, teams, always yeah. know it because obviously it's, it's a fun place to visit, and uh, it's great when I'm freezing my butt off here in Chicago six months a year, uh, but I hear that really like you're... A big part of putting uh, the Charlotte kind of tech scene on the map here, which is, uh, you know, we'll be exciting to dig into as well. Working on it, you know. <laughs> are you from Charlotte originally? Or were they- uh, no,
1: uh, actually not. I'm from Kansas City uh, originally. So uh, fairly new to Charlotte, but uh, but been a great, uh, great spot and met a lot of cool people in the tech scene and, and outside of it.
0: Is the next question that you always get? Are you from the Kansas and Missouri side? Uh,
1: you know, from those who know, it's it's not a bad question. Um, my answer is always the same, though, which is, uh, you know, I am I grew up on the Kansas side. If you've spent any time in Kansas City, you know that, like, the side is like something that's on a map, uh, okay. but in real life, there's like a two-lane road, one on each side called State Line, and, like, beyond that, you'd have no idea whether you're in Kansas or Missouri, so it's very much one city. Um mm-hmm there's a road called State Line, you know, that that goes right through the middle. And technically they have different governments and whatever, but like practically, you know, one city.
0: Interesting. So as yeah. someone who's never been, it's really characterized okay. to me as like it's, you know, it's really two no. polar opposite sides, but no. No. no I'm no. being I mean big. like it, it if you're
1: if you're trying to get snow removed, you know, for the 3 days a year it snows, like Kansas is all over it, Missouri's going to let those roads ice. You know uh, that's about the noticeable difference you know <laughs> obviously there's stuff like with the local government administration and school systems those are distinct but like living in kansas city um the school i went to was on state line so i actually parked in kansas and my classes were in missouri like 10 feet away wow. uh and so it's really uh it feels pretty natural
0: yeah well that, that's very interesting already learning a lot here on uh, Two minutes into our podcast, yeah. I mean, this is a or
1: ge- ge- geography based, uh, you know, podcast, I assume.
0: Which will be <laughs> to the benefit of any middle schoolers listening to this. Exactly. That's <laughs> where we started. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but you made a lot of enviable jumps here, Teddy. Like breaking into the analytics sure. space, breaking into VC, then like launching startups. So excited to break that down here. How you navigated it all and what you learned along the way.
1: it.
2: And Teddy, it's great to have you, man. Uh, to just formally kind of give listeners an idea of your timeline here. So you went to Middlebury. Um, where there, you were majoring in um, econ, and then you started your career in data analytics before moving into the big leagues venture capital at Bain. So from there, you were at uh, Passport. So you were, from what I can understand, the VP of International Business Development, actually working in London uh, for Passport there. You did that for two years, and then you were the VP of Products uh, at Passport for another two years before you you know finally jumped off and started Street Fair. Uh, now based here in Charlotte, North Carolina. It's awesome to have you with us, man. How do you get from London basically now to Charlotte? Is is that is that where you moved to London directly to Charlotte? Did you have somewhere uh, directly in the middle there?
1: Uh, no, it was it was from London to Charlotte, uh, and it was all through Passport. Passport's a uh, a Charlotte-based company, um, and I was living in New York. Uh, joined Passport from Bain Capital Ventures, who's the uh, one of the lead investors in Passport. Uh, and I actually joined Passport to start the London office. So went to London for a year. Um, and then when I jumped into the uh, VP of product role, um, this was you know pre-COVID. And so the whole team was in the office in Charlotte and it didn't, it was very hard to, to do that uh, remotely. The irony is I moved because of work uh, on March 11th, 2020. And I think March 13th, 2020 is when like everyone went remote again. So March 12th was like my only day in three and a half years of passport. Like that was in person. Um, but, uh, you know, that's life. Charlotte was a much better place for COVID. I'm very glad I didn't get stuck in London. Yeah, that's nice.
0: Love that. And so I'm really curious. I know we were talking a little bit um, earlier, Teddy, about like street fair. So I just started, um, kind of managing my own, uh, building and uh, at least property with a tenant. And I encountered this week even kind of a major repair that I needed to find someone for it. So it sounds like there's a, I can ex- speak to it firsthand. There's a major need for people to have what Street Fair does. So how did you and your co-founder kind of take this idea and make it into a reality of launching uh, about a year ago?
1: Yeah, yeah, we, we got started on it about a year ago. We started launching Pilot Neighborhoods in March. Um, But, uh, you know, basically, at its core, Street Fair is a marketplace for home services and particularly home service maintenance, like gutter cleaning, pressure washing, uh, lawn care, you know, air duct cleaning, uh, a lot of home maintenance services I didn't know existed before starting Street Fair. Um, And, you know, the difference with Street Fair, it's, it's all predicated at the neighborhood level. So we make it really easy for homeowners to see which local businesses, their neighbors already using trust. And then arguably more interesting is which uh, businesses already have scheduled visits in your neighborhood. Like one of your neighbors has hired a tree trimmer next Thursday, and we let uh, homeowners piggyback on each other's existing bookings. Um, So we live in the same neighborhood. You have a tree trimmer coming next Thursday. I can see that in street fair. I can add myself to that service visit. And then you and I both get a discount because now that tree trimmer is making one trip to the neighborhood and getting two customers um, so we really you know designed the model to, to kind of benefit all participants including some pretty cool positive externalities like a lower carbon footprint you know less traffic and um, some other things but you know to answer your question as far as how we got going and I think one of the reasons that we're taking a very new approach to, to this problem you know we're obviously not the first company who's thought hey it's it's a pretty big pain in the to you know book a tree trimmer like let's go build something that's a little bit better um but it, interestingly enough it actually got started uh mike my, my co-founder when COVID hit um and he he was the vp of engineering at passport so we had worked together for a little bit you know been through the trenches together we knew we wanted to you know start a business together and, and go into business together and so uh you know a couple months after COVID hit uh we actually almost bought a pool cleaning business in charlotte Um, zero tech thesis like he was an engineer I was a product person it was like no this is just pool cleaning um but the 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 basic idea or the the kind of thesis we had heard that when COVID happened there was like a two-year wait list to get a pool built in Charlotte because all the neighborhood pools were closed the country club pools were closed whatever else so like everybody was trying to get a pool uh you know put in their house and um we were like, well, it's kind of interesting, you know. There's going to be way more pools built in the next couple of years than there normally would be, uh, and unlike Zoom or something that could contract after COVID, it's not right. like it's like, hey, COVID's over, let's pour concrete in the pool we built last year. So we're like, well, you know, this is like a growing market, and it might be sustained. This could be like a cool, you know, side investment. Um, Wild. And as yeah, and as we like started doing diligence, we realized like, wow, you know, if you want to own a good pool business you got to have 10 pools on the same street. Um, you got to have what, what's called route density. You want to go to one one street and clean 10 pools as opposed to driving over Charlotte. And there was like nothing even remotely modern out there to help businesses, local businesses drive route density. It was like going door to door or like leaving notes in people's mailbox saying, you know, your neighbors use me and whatever else. And so I think that was the problem that kind of caught our, our interest is like, it, you know, massive market, and huge underserved opportunity to help drive route density. And then as we dug deeper into it, we realized like the neighborhood trust problem was equally strong. So we ended with the two sided marketplace there.
0: Wow. And is this something where obviously there's a consumer pain point, like homeowner? Yeah, all, totally. You you even brought out. I mean, businesses struggle with their unit economics here to like really effectively yeah. deploy, not just get customers and get revenue, but like really have um, sharp margins. So is is are you taking like one route or the other? Uh, like when, when you have these two-sided marketplaces, yeah. Oftentimes, like Uber, right? They are like yeah. subsidizing drivers while like giving all these like r- free rides away. Are you yeah. like take what, what kind of approach do you even take to launch this from scratch?
1: Yeah, uh, launching a two-sided marketplace is definitely uh, it's definitely really hard, uh, and it's it's not for the faint of heart. You know, I think the upside is um, anything that has network effects, like a marketplace, is like. If successful, and that's a, that's a high bar, you know, there, most days I wake up and I'm like, couldn't we have just picked like a SaaS business where you can just incrementally add customers? Like, why do we have to do this whole hard thing? But once you get it going, you know, it, it's, it, it's a really powerful force. So we, uh, we're going to, but yeah, I mean, in, in terms of our approach, I think, um, I think one of the things you have to be good at, and it, it's different for a lot of businesses, but particularly for any two-sided marketplace with like a local component, Mm-hmm. Um, like an Uber or a Instacart or any of the food delivery apps um, is you got to be really, really good at breaking uh, a big problem down. Like mm-hmm. every time you think about what street fair could be in 10 years, like your kind of mind recoils. Cause you're like, Oh, my, how am I going to light up a hundred thousand neighborhoods and get, you know, thousands and thousands of service riders. And I think one of the things we've done really well is say like, okay, none of that matters. Mm-hmm. Can we get, 30 service providers and 50 homes in one neighborhood to use this. Like, and, and if we can, if we can break this down to one neighborhood, we could probably do it in two neighborhoods. Like, I mean, like, okay, cool. We got to work in two times. Like how much harder would it be to get it to work 10 times? Uh, And then you just increment your way to like, cool. Now we're in 15 markets and all this stuff, which we're definitely not to be clear, but uh, uh, you know, I I think you've got to be really good in a two-sided marketplace at like breaking problems down.
0: I love that.
2: Interesting. And so I was doing some, uh, you're pretty sharp, man. That's, that's pretty interesting the way they just kind of like broke that down. Uh, I think a lot of young entrepreneurs, they get um, too bogged down with what you just said, right? They think 10 years from now, of what their business could be or what, you know, when you come up with the idea, you don't come up with the idea of starting with one neighborhood. You're like, oh, we could own, you know, all the major cities and this could
1: be I was I was and, shopping for yachts when I had this idea. I was like, "All right, like, am I going 300 feet, or should I just go?" Yeah, you know, it's tough.
2: <laughs> yeah, and they're yeah. they're modeling out in Excel. Like, I've been there, right? Because you got to pitch yeah. that. Basically, so when you raise BC, like, you got to you got to show them, hey, this is what this looks like yeah. in five years. This is what this looks like in ten years, because you're basically raising money on how big uh, your total addressable market is, and you know how big the company could be, and how quickly. And so. I was doing some research from customer base I don't know uh, if this is verified or not you you don't have to say but uh, looks like you guys were able to raise 1.7 million dollars in your seed round uh, earlier this year that's a that's a pretty big seed round um, from what I understand I've been in your shoes and see that that's a grind um, kind of looks like you you did it right as the market yeah. was taking a yeah. turn how was that experience for you guys
1: um it was, uh, we were very fortunate to have, um, a, a lot of interest and it was, uh, it was a very quick, uh, it, it was a very quick raise. Um, it's probably fairly called a seed, you know, at the time, uh, it was definitely a pre-seed cause that's how crazy things were, which was a term that was new to me, even though I had only a couple of years out of venture. Um, but you know, I think, yes, we definitely raised in a, in a better market. Um, I had a couple you know, advantages going out to, to raise a business than maybe your average person, which uh, I certainly want to be like cards on the table, about, which is like, I had been a venture capitalist and uh, the most valuable thing there is like, I knew how it worked and I had a network. Um, and so, you know, I started just by hitting up my old BCV colleagues, uh, really none of whom did consumer, um, because Bain was a big kind of B2B, uh, uh, VC firm. But, you know, it started as like, hey, let me bounce this idea off you. And I think the, the combination of the idea, how we were approaching it, it very quickly turned into, hey, you should run at this. And I don't do consumer, but let me introduce you to this person who's a consumer VC. And so um, it, it it moved really quickly. Uh, and we certainly don't take that for granted, but I think it was a function of like the time and 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 how thoughtful we were. Um, the, the one thing I would definitely say we did well as we were, we were, you know, moonlighting on street fair for a while before we went to raise. And I think that's like some of the best advice I, I'd ever give. Like we didn't, you know, have some big scaled operation, but like, you know, my co-founder was an engineer. So we were building lightweight versions of it. We were running tests in our respective neighborhoods and it, it, uh, we ended up having, you know, pretty pretty clear and organized approach and validation by the time we went to raise the pre-seed
0: oh, teddy what does that look like for you know you said your own neighborhoods are you just like knocking on like <laughs> uh, we de- we definitely door. did a little of
1: that no it was yeah. it was much more like uh so you know again the, and the, the idea for street fair has evolved a lot since when we first you know uh met in march of 21 and like took the day off work and like had an awesome whiteboarding session like that that idea has evolved but by the time we went to raise like it, it we understood you know we had we had learned a lot um just by running some some tests which is again an advantage of consumer like you couldn't do that if you want to start an enterprise payments company it's like you can't really run a lot of tests um but you know what we would do is um we would just like hire someone like, a, like, hey, I need my gutters cleaned So we would like hire gutter cleaner. And then we'd say, hey, uh, by the way, like if I get two or three of my neighbors to like also sign up, like, would you give us a discount? And we'd wait until one of them was like, sure. Like, what were you thinking? we would be like, how about like 10 bucks each? Like if we didn't really care, it was just about the yeah. validation that like service providers understood the return to route density and they would pass that, economic excuse me, economics on to the consumer. And then, you know, we would just like try to find a service provider who would say yes to this concept. Uh, We hadn't built anything, which is also advice I'd give. Like when you're, when you're looking to start something, a lot of people or a lot of entrepreneurs, particularly more junior entrepreneurs or first-time entrepreneurs, they're like, all right, this starts with $300,000 in debt. Like I need to go hire a, a dev shop to like build my prototype app and then I'll see if anyone wants this. Um, and I think one of the things, uh, largely I credit this to my co-founder, Mike, but he's a master and and I've become very good at, um, uh, like taking the shortest path to, to learning what you set out to learn or the cheapest path. Like you usually don't need to build an app to find out if you're solving the problem people care about. And so, you know, our first five or six group deals were totally offline, but we were like, Hey, I mean, if we just got, if we just saved me and three neighbors, you know, 30 bucks on gutter cleaning, like via text, like. We could probably build a basic web page that captured there were three users on it, and like that we all would save ten bucks, and then we could take that basic web page and like share it on Nextdoor, the neighborhood Facebook group, and then we got like three other strangers to sign up, and we we're like, all right, you know, that was a very cheap experiment where we were able to validate the, the core concept.
0: Wow, I, I, so I know Jake's been in your shoes exactly, right? Take yeah, literally just seeing is there consumer interest like is there any market here, especially since it hasn't been digitized? My experience really is more so on the, the end of, you know, scaling companies rather than like creating something brand new from scratch. So it's fascinating to hear this. And is this something that you've kind of, you acquired and picked up through your time in venture, or has this been a mindset like dating back? If we talked to high school, Teddy, you know, captain of the, I'm sure you were captain of your high school tennis team too. So like, and we talked to high school, Teddy, would you did, you have the same mindset back then?
1: Uh, Definitely not. Uh, I was, I was just as, as ambitious. Um, and I would have been just as like excited to, to try something totally new. Um, I, you know, street fair definitely was not the first business I started. It was the first like for-profit venture back. Like I'm going to take a real swing and bet my career on this. Uh, but I'd started three or four businesses, you know, over the years, like small, totally different, including a nonprofit. But, um, high school teddy would have had the same like like i knew i wanted to start a company uh i would say like the the ability to kind of break a problem down and iterate and be really thoughtful was um you know my time at venture definitely taught me some frameworks and like the eight-person New York office at BCV when I was there, like some of the smartest people I've ever sat in a room with. And so even though nothing we were working on had anything to do with like some of the problems I'm solving now, I just think I like leveled up my thinking a little bit and like frameworks and, and how to approach problems. You know, that said, I think VCs are very much like the big picture, like will this work at scale? And And this is the opposite. I'm like, can I get three other neighbors to like agree to this thing? um but i think it gave me some tools uh and then you know a lot of it is like like i said mike's really good at this and and mike's been a career engineer and so this is kind of a thing that like you know i think certain engineers who really figure this out become so powerful because it's not about lines of code it's about like well is this the right thing like how can we validate that before i go you know put my headphones on and crank it out so mike was really good um i'd highly recommend the book uh uh, the lean startup. Uh, Mike made me read it, and it informed a lot of how we approached. And that's where I kind of got the like, what's the shortest path to like learning, uh, and that's your really only goal when you're when you're setting out to do something.
2: Teddy, what kind of student were you in college? Um, so you were an econ major. Were you kind of entrepreneurial back then? Does this kind of something
1: you knew you wanted to do? Uh, yeah, definitely. Um, I was a good student. Uh, I. Probably wish I had a more rebellious streak. Like you hear about <laughs> the best entrepreneurs are like, "Oh, school sucks," or they had decent grades. Like I was, I was pretty, uh, I was a pretty good student, um, and like I, I cared a lot about school. Um, I started my first business at at uh, Middlebury, um, which was a really cool, just like a, a, a thing to do. And it's the advice I get to everyone. I'm like. I don't care how old you are, like start something. It can be literally a lemonade stand. It can be whatever. It doesn't, it actually probably shouldn't be some huge venture back thing, or it certainly doesn't need to be, but you just learn so many valuable things. So the first business I started actually broke my leg, like really bad, had to have basically reconstructed ankle surgery when I was a freshman. And Middlebury is, um, is all like buffet style dining halls uh and so if you're on crutches for three and a half months like I was like you really can't like hold a tray and put food and you know whatever else and um this probably also tells you a little bit about like my ability to care more about a project than my own like personal appearance like I I don't know if this was great for my social life in middle grade but I designed this like tray that had like duct tape I like stole a dining hall tray drilled holes in it like put this like strap balancing thing that I had designed through it and like Wore it around the dining halls so I could like serve myself on crutches. Um, it was definitely not very cool looking, but it worked really well. And uh, I ended up having like people come up to me and say, "Oh, where'd you get that?" Like I was just on crutches, or my friends on crutches, and I was like, "This is clearly homemade," you, you know. Uh, but I was like, "Hey, like a handful of people just said they wanted this thing I built." Because um, when I built it, I was like, uh, for what it's worth, like I lost you know 17 pounds in like three weeks. Uh, when I went back to Middlebury and I was like, all right, I got to figure something out. Um, and so I literally built it cause I was like, this is brutal. And, uh, I was tired of as a freshman, only been there for a few months, like asking people to get my plate of food. Um, but then when I had people kind of coming up to me and, and, and asking me where I got this, I was like, yeah, maybe this is a thing. Uh, the head of dining hall uh, services was fortunate enough to like take my meeting when I showed up at his office. And he thought it was really cool. He gave me the phone book of every dining hall manager, uh, at, of every college and university, and was like, "Don't tell anyone." I, sorry, Matt. Don't tell anyone I gave you this, but like, you should totally call them all and sell this. <laughs> and I was like, "Done." Uh, I was like, "I'm going to do this." And then I won the business pitch competition. Uh, I think I got three grand uh, from that, and uh, partnered up with with one of my classmates, and we spent the summer like, you know, fi- figuring this out and selling it to schools. And from then on, I was like, all right, I'm doing this. Like, this is awesome.
2: And that was, that was, uh, you have it on your LinkedIn, Easy Tray LLC. That was, that was
1: Easy trays. <laughs> Yeah,
2: Easy trays LLC. What happened to that business? Is it just like, most 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 people think like, oh, there's always like this huge crash and burn or something happens. Like oh. when a business kind of goes away, What usually it just kind of fizzles out or it's like, all right, we're not working on this anymore. And like, just yeah. kind of let
1: like the LLC, like, right. Uh, it it's basically that. I mean, we, when we set out to build easy trays like neither one of us thought like this is what gets us to like you know we're not going to retire off our easy trays money it's like we kind of knew it was a stupid crazy little idea but uh you know having lived through what it was like to you know uh be on crutches or or you know I I didn't have a disability but people with a disability on campus are in a similar problem I was pretty passionate about like this is, this isn't that hard to build and, and, and no one else was, was helping in this way. Um, and, but we knew it was going to be like just this, this cool thing we could do. And so, you know, I think we viewed it as like a summer project a little bit and we really spent, you know, I guess the first summer I spent like testing different materials. And then the next summer we like, actually were were selling this and stuff. Um, and so, uh, you know, at the end of that summer, like I did a semester abroad and I wasn't trying to like run this dining hall business from Madrid, Spain. And so we just kind of let it, uh, we just kind of let it go. What I will say, like a lesson learned. And I'm fortunate enough that my business partner's parents had a little more wherewithal, but like, we just like, we had created this LLC, we had done all this, like we, we made like 10 grand, you know, we had like, tax exposure like we were supposed to file this and we just like went back to school <laughs> we were like oh that was fun like and, <laughs> you know so it was like uh, my buddy's dad was like you guys are clowns like i had our lawyer like collapse the llc and like file tag and i was like thank you for that and, like months <laughs> later he told me um but it was a really fun summer
0: and i love to say that you 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 make some companies with cool names easy tray street fair like is this just like hardy start kid? is
1: a non-profit oh,
0: yeah exactly so are, are these all just teddy off the top of your head kind of like things that you come up with
1: yeah yeah i, I think you're being generous i'm saying easy trays is cool but uh maybe maybe you're I'll,
0: 19 right i mean it's
1: yeah cool. uh i think hardy start and street fair are great uh we get some street fair name compliments um yeah i mean both these just actually all of these were were like the first name um you know so they just yeah they worked wow i guess yeah you, you got, like to, you got to start that. with the name yeah,
0: yeah totally were the did, did the domains like exist were they available uh i'd say real really that's where you start is
1: like you kind of think of it and then you know i just go to godaddy and i'd like plug in and and see what i could get um uh hardy start was available easy trades was available um, and that that informed the name selection. Street Fair was not available, uh, so I actually had to buy that domain um, from someone who had been squatting on it since like 1996 and had like 10,000 domains as a whole thing. Um, so we started with Join, like we knew we wanted to name it Street Fair. So you know, JoinStreetFair.com was available, um, and then once we raised the, the venture around, we were like, all right, let's let's get the real deal. Like no one's trying to go to JoinStreetFair.com. How much did you pay for it? Uh, 10 grand. 10 grand. Just shy of 10 grand, yeah.
2: Yeah, I had a similar experience where I had to like wire a guy money in South America. <laughs> and it was like, I don't, I don't know if I'm just about to lose $19,000, but we did it
1: after we raised venture as well and did the whole great so, brand. Yeah, uh, so the story behind this is like Mike, uh, Mike makes so much fun of me, but um, like on GoDaddy, you know, it was like the, the seller, you know, the owner of this domain has a minimum requirement of 10,000. And, you know, that doesn't mean you're going to get it for 10,000. Like that means like, if you try to submit a bid for 8,000, GoDaddy's like, we did not send this to the, you know, the bid, like it's, it's minimum. And so I was like, oh, I'm going to get this for less. Uh, and I set about like trying to find out who owned it. And it involved like, you know, who is look up, found a company, went on LinkedIn, found like, someone affiliated with the company. And I was like, I can't reach out because my LinkedIn already said, uh, actually my LinkedIn might not have said Street Fair, but I was like VP of product at Passport, which had raised hundred, uh, you know, hundred million dollars. I was like, I don't know, maybe they'll think I'm, you know, able to pay for, for this. Um, and like, I look like I might be trying to start a company or whatever else. So I had my mom like pretend, and my mom's a photographer. I had her pretend that she was trying to start like this photography website called Street Fair you know for for a local artist and i was having her like ping strangers on linkedin and saying do you own this and then we ended up like getting the lead of the name who owns it and like switched to facebook and she like facebook messaged this guy who had been sitting on this domain since like 1996 like friended him on facebook sent him this message and like it basically went down on facebook chat uh, but but we oh and then like so this took months and i was telling mike i'm like mike i'm going to get this thing for a steal like i'm going direct and like uh, I'm pretty sure he's, you know, uh, it was $10,000 less the 5% GoDaddy fee. So we paid 9500 for it. Um, <laughs> yeah. And Mike was like, dude, you should have just bought it. <laughs> like, Anyway, it's a good story. That's the stuff you got to do. Yeah. I used a broker, which I probably overpaid for it, um, using a broker that route. Um, but you didn't spend two months, you know, having your mom, like, lie to strangers. That. Yeah, on the yeah. <laughs> so I'd, I'd argue you came out of it. <laughs> That's a good story. Tell
2: us, about your, uh, tell us about your years in BC. And so um, I think it's always interesting talking to somebody who goes from BC to starting their own companies, because they're two very different skill sets. Um, yeah. And usually you did the reverse, you know, you start a company, uh, usually have some kind of exit and you've been advising for a while. And then you kind of start building the muscles to be a good venture capitalist after that. Uh, that that's the path that most people take. So you didn't reverse, right? So yeah. you were at Bain. Um, what were the kind of the most valuable things that you got from, uh, what'd you say? BBC is, is Bain uh, Venture Capital or Group or, some, or something BCB, like that? Bain Capital yeah. Ventures, yeah. Um, yeah. Well, what was your role there? And then the kind of, what are the, the big things that you took away from that experience?
1: Yeah. So I definitely went in reverse order. Um, it, it, you know, there's a reason there's a normal order. It's like, it's probably the way to do it. Uh, and there are so, there also are not many junior, you know, positions at VC funds, um, more so with growth. And and so this was a growth. So I got very fortunate to, to get connected to that team. And, you know, I also props to Bain, like, I wasn't an investment banker. Um, I like did not know how to read a P&L or make a P&L or any of that stuff. Um, and, you know, what was cool about Bain, um, and I don't know how it's changed, but like, you know, it's the same Bain as Bain Consulting. There's a big kind of consulting DNA there, but also like an operator DNA. And so I think there were only like two or three investment bankers out of 24 people on the investing team when I joined. And so I probably you know had no business getting that role but uh bane was open to like kind of young scrappy you know people who who wanted to learn on the job <clears throat>
0: well to your point but- Ted, i have so many friends who j- went to get their mba just to get like an intro to vcs so how do you even begin to get a seat at the table there
1: uh so this is really random but like when i started easy trades um you know i uh was, living out of my so it was a little as simple as we like, started these trades right cool we're gonna spend the summer selling to colleges and universities uh we found out that boston has the most number of colleges per capita so we're like cool we got to be headquartered in boston and uh i have an aunt and uncle who live in boston so i was like living you know out of their like you know basically basement and um uh my uncle knew one of the partners at, uh, at Bain Ventures. And so I was a sophomore, uh, yeah, I was a sophomore in college and he just like was able to get this guy to meet me for coffee. Um, and, uh, it was not really a job interview because Bain didn't hire out of school, but, you know, he and I had like an awesome conversation, uh, Paul Zerlo, still very thankful for him. And, you know, I just really kind of stayed in touch. And so I actually interviewed there when I was a senior and, they decided oh. not to hire, they decided not to hire anyone out of school. And I kind of just stayed in touch with him. And then he reached out to me saying there were a couple of positions in the New York office and I, I applied. So um, actually I reached out to him and he happened to say like, Hey, there are a couple of positions by the way. So, you know, I think he was thinking about me, but anyway, so yeah, very fortuitous uh, yeah. And, and, and there aren't a lot. So when I got the opportunity, I, I jumped on it. Um, I was very naive about what it would, what that job would be like. Like I went there not to be a VC. I was like, cool, I'm going to get to talk to founders all day. I'm going to get to study businesses. I'm like, within three to six months, I'm going to be out of there because I'm going to have like started a business. Um, VC is a really bad place to, to, to go before you start a business because as you said, Jake, uh, it's a totally different side of your brain, which I did not appreciate. Um, and, and I knew pretty quickly it was not a fit for me. I was like, yeah, I'm trying to be on the other side of the table, but I learned a ton. Um, so I'm grateful for the experience. Uh, in all this back and forth, I, I I lost your initial question. It's like what would you, like what were the the things I learned there?
2: Yeah, basically. How do you what did you get out of VC uh, yeah. that basically helped you be successful at Passport and now start your own company?
1: Yeah, so definitely a lot. I'd say first is just the 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 caliber of coworkers. Um, I mean the 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 team there was so smart or is is so smart and totally leveled up my thinking and my work product. Um, And I think work product is like a word I did not know or think about going into Bain. Um, And, you know, as weird as it sounds, like you just, uh, particularly when you're starting out as an analyst, um, you have to be so incredibly like concise when you're pitching to a partner because your job as an analyst is like, go find companies and get a partner to meet with them. And there was kind of this like unspoken, like, yeah, you've got to write a perfect email to get the partner to like take the meeting. And I think some of that was a little cultural at at Bain. You know, there are a lot of ex-consultants and and a lot of um, people that put a lot of weight, but it was so good for me to just learn how to organize my thoughts. And I was like, you know, pre that I would have written some super long and rambly email. Um, So it's just great to like, how can you effectively communicate the things that really matter in as few sentences as possible? Um, and to this day, the, the partner I worked for, Matt Harris is like, in terms of impact per syllable spoken is off the charts. Like he says nothing and says so much at the same time. Um, and so I just learned a lot about, you know, how to, how to organize your, your thoughts um, kind of frameworks. Uh, and then, you, you know, you learn how this world works. So if you want to start a venture backed company, there's definitely some shortcuts by having been on the venture side and you, you're able to avoid very basic, but common cap table mistakes from just like agreeing to bad terms or not knowing how it works or not speaking the language and all these weird and, and probably, you know, not just probably weird. And like, I wish they didn't exist, but the reality is like, it's still people on both sides and they do exist. Like, you know, learning how to kind of speak the language, learning how to think like what a VC wants to hear when you're pitching, you know, all of which made it so much easier to, to, to raise, raise money.
0: Yeah. Absolutely. And, you know, so just from like the standpoint of uh, you clearly learned a ton in VC. Passport sounds like you, could, you mentioned you connected to that yeah. because it was part of the Bain portfolio. Yeah. Yeah.
1: yeah. 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 Um, and so it was actually, I sourced that uh, wow. investment when I was at Passport. Um, and, or sorry, when I was at Bain, I, it was a company I'd come across um, yeah. and it ended up being, like, like, it took me 18 months to get Bob to To like actually take Bain's money, um, and, and it was it was a long process that died like multiple times, and I was the only one like really like trying to keep it alive, um, uh, and and so I was just so passionate about the company, I I I had a great I had a great relationship at the end of all this with with the founding team at Passport, um, and you know was was ready to do something next, was ready to do something a little more um, operational or entrepreneurial. And, you know, was thinking about business school and then found out that Passport was thinking about a London office. So I was like, I'm going to throw my hat
0: in that ring to,
1: <laughs> to, to move to London and uh, and see if I can help out. So that ended up working out.
0: And so you probably had a, a ton of deal flow, many companies that you either sourced or diligenced and, you know, vetted. Uh, so, like, what specifically about passport, aside from obviously, really cool job in London, uh, yeah, know, what really like drew you away from Bain relative to all the other chances of that I kind of? yeah. Um, it,
1: it, you know, it, it's a good question. and i think I think this is the reason I wasn't a good b c is um uh, I love a hard problem and and passports a f- hard business. Uh, and like, you know, if I were solving for for like, hey, I'm trying to join a rocket ship and like make a bunch of money off my options, um, you know, the, the other business that I worked on pretty closely and thought about joining was a company called Attentive. We did their series A and I think their last valuation was like 10 billion plus. And I was like, well, those options would have been pretty valuable. But uh, uh, Passport, like, Which, like, if you're trying to be a great VC, you should look for rocket ships. Like, don't look for cool businesses doing really hard things, like, that maybe don't have the same explosive growth curve. But I was just totally, I think as the entrepreneur side, I was like, this feels hard, but doable, and therefore, like, cool. And, like, it's not obvious, but I think I could really sink my teeth into this and, like, help figure it out with this team that I had had grown to like and, and, and respect. Um, and to so be clear, Passport was like a great business, like really solid foundation and everything like that. Um, but I was just drawn to, to the challenge and, and to the team. Um, and, uh, you know, just ended up being like an immediate kind of fit, um, when, when I started talking to them about it. It's
0: exciting.
2: That's awesome. You're the uh, second person to, uh, to have the same path transferring out of VC into basically a portfolio company. Um, yeah. Which I feel like is a hack because you know you're joining a good one if uh, you're starting and DC
1: first. I, I did have unfair inside information for sure <laughs> uh, yeah. That's awesome
2: and so Teddy what, what's next for Street Fair?
1: Um, you know uh, quite literally we are making it work neighborhood by neighborhood and just the way we broke this problem down um, and, and I think you know again we're super early we only launched started launching neighborhoods in March um We're we're in twelve neighborhoods, all in North Charlotte. Um, uh, but we're launching. You know, we launched three neighborhoods this week. So the way we kind of broke that problem down is step one: make it work. And we decided to pick six neighborhoods. You know, something more than one, less than ten. Uh, it was a little bit arbitrary, um, and we were really disciplined about. You know, we started launching these neighborhoods in March, and we're like, we're not going to launch any of this. I don't care how well these six are going. Um, let's be really hands on. Let's talk to as many users as possible. I mean, we door knocked. We used to drive the neighborhoods and see which service providers were like actually doing the work and like did all these things that don't scale. Um, great advice. Obviously, I can't take any credit, but like do things that don't scale early on. And so, because it was six neighborhoods, we were able to run very cheap tests. Like, if we wanted to test a mailer, it was like cool. That's a $400 test, not a $40,000 test, because it was not some national ad campaign or $400,000 test. So we launched six neighborhoods, and our only goal was like, get it to work, you know, iterate on the product. Um, when we launched Street Fair um, uh, in March, we didn't even have a service provider facing product. Like when someone requested a service, like we just got an e- email and then we'd call the provider and say, like, hey, you just got one, like go to this house and whatever else. And so Really like staying really scrappy because it was a manageable volume, and and then, uh, you know, we were really focused on kind of cohort penetration, like how are the neighborhoods performing? We could run all these tests, and and it, it was working really well. And so then in in July, um, we went to phase two, which is not make it scale, but make it repeat. Uh, and there's a big difference between repeating something or repeating success, and then scaling success. Um, And repeating, like we're still doing things that don't scale, but we're coming from a foundation of like, cool, like we got it to work in six neighborhoods. You know, on average, we had signed up a quarter of the households in each neighborhood and we were getting, you know, uh, dozens and dozens of bookings a month. And like the providers were getting the jobs done and they were happy and we were driving route density and all these things we set out to prove, um, which were only possible because the sample size was six, So we could really focus on it. And so we're like, all right, let's launch one a week. Uh, you know, and let's let's see if we can repeat the success these six had, you know, 12 more times this quarter. Um, so that's the that's the stage we're at right now. Um and then, you know, if we're able to repeat in our next wave of cohorts, then great. Like let's start to think about scaling to all of Charlotte and beyond.
0: Wow. Teddy, I I feel like you give us so many nuggets on like how to literally take ideas and put it into practice. I think that like phase one, two, three is. Like a a totally new framework that I haven't even heard of yet, but I really like it, especially since I focus a lot of my day on thinking about like platforms within, you know, industry, but, um, you know, consumer obviously is like a common thread there. Um, So when when you're advising, I'm sure you have many conversations with like young folks, which is really the demographic of our listeners. Um, Like, how do you tell them to kind of what they should be focused on now, like developmentally, Uh, in terms of ideas, like what what are the kind of tidbits and nuggets you impart to them?
1: Number one is like, start something. Uh, And it's what I look for in everyone I've ever hired. Um, By the way, starting something could be like starting a club in college or organizing like a neighborhood pickleball tournament. Like it it doesn't have to be a a scalable business. Um, But you learn a lot by like going from zero to one on anything um and you know i think that's just a great set of skills and so i i really don't care what it is but like start something it also shows like a passion and a stick to itness ness and, and whatever else um and and so much of like what we do on a day-to-day basis is like not in a textbook or not in whatever um so so start something um and then you know i think this is a fairly recent skill but something that that we really lean into just as you talked about like break down the problems like um, you know everyone's first thought is like okay cool I need to have this app built and then people will come or whatever else and like you got to completely flip it and like get someone to do the thing that your app will ultimately do without an app like if you can't convince them to like do it and do all the work for them like text the whoever and show up and pick it up like all the best companies like when when Postmates was starting like the restaurants weren't involved. They just got someone to book and they sent an employee to go pick up the sandwich and like drop it off. And it was like, cool. They just de-risked part of that supply chain. Like they got someone to place an order on an app. Um, And so, you know, if you are working on a problem, just like, what's the the easiest thing you could learn that is going to need to be true for the bigger picture to work? Um, And I think that applies, you know, whether you're starting a company or not, you know, that applies to most people's day jobs. but just just break problems down. Build it and they will come is wrong.
0: Make it happen and then build.
1: (laughs) Exactly, like make it happen. And then like, you know, uh, technology is never the, is like even Street Fair, the the product itself isn't like the reason Street Fair is working. Now, some products are probably like, yeah, like the product is the whole thing. But I think a much healthier approach even when you're starting a technology company is like what behavior pattern you're trying to drive and can technology help that behavior pattern? And you should approach it from that lens as opposed to, I have an idea for
0: an app. Yeah, consumer first, then tech. So not tech first, then consumer. I mean, Teddy, this has been so, so insightful for us. So we're really grateful to have you on. So, you know, one of the early episodes here for our Belker podcast
1: uh, super excited and glad we got connected and uh you know if if we don't totally f- tree fair hopefully i can come back you know at some point in the future and and tell you whatever phase we're on then And
0: yeah uh, will it be phase phase four is there a phase after phase three
1: probably you know if, if we if we survive that long world I, I domination try to, <laughs> yeah I try not to think too far in the future you know because if you don't hit the next phase like the next part doesn't matter. And uh, If you allow yourself to focus on one problem at a time, you can actually get done. I
0: love it. Teddy, this is great. Thanks so much cool. for joining me. Uh, excited to, to publish this for our listeners.
1: Sweet. Awesome, guys. Thanks. Thanks for
2: joining us this week on The Bell Curve. If you loved this episode, go ahead, give us a follow, and rate us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. It would mean the world to Tom and I. We come up with new episodes every Tuesday at 12 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Until next week.